Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest on Facing the Canon is Lauren Windle, a woman transformed from addiction. Lauren Windle, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very delighted to, be here. to have <laughs> you here. Uh, when I heard a little bit about your story, I thought we've got to have you uh, on our programme. You grew up, Lauren, within a Christian family, went to church, but then you stopped going when you were a teenager. Yes, yes. So my mum's Christian. She always took us to church. But when I was old enough to be given the choice, did I want to keep coming or stay at home? I chose to stay at home. I just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't get on with it. I didn't have a really solid group of friends. And I think I was so much more interested in, you know, what we would call sort of worldly things you know I was I was so caught up with my friends and and all of that kind of thing that I just didn't I didn't want to be a part of it anymore and binge drinking began yes so I was about 13 when I started drinking and uh, I grew up in London and there's a real culture of of heavy drinking in teenagers a lot of teenagers not all um so it was it was just sort of accepted as of par for the course you you drink too much you desperately steal alcohol from your family or you know you try and convince the oldest tallest looking person to go to an off license to buy you something you you know you throw up none of that felt abnormal to me um so yeah i just i just carried on sort of drinking in parks and, and being a bit of a reckless teenager and then you went off to university Yes, off to university. Um, Continue drinking. Drinking very heavily through university, actually, um, and sort of embracing that party lifestyle. But again, you know, if you have a an issue with drinking, university is the perfect place to hide in plain sight because not only I think it's only recently that that it's come up in conversation how unhealthy that is, but every sort of you know freshers' week settling in activity revolves around alcohol. Yes. So so that was it. I was I was very much at home embracing that element of university life. And then on top of that, um, you've started taking drugs. Now mm. tell us. How- what prompted you to take drugs? Yeah, I resisted for quite a while. Um, so I started taking drugs. I'd just finished university. I was 22. And a lot of people who were going to dabble with drugs had already done so at university. And I think I was aware that I had a sort of downward spiral tendency to really get invested in things that I shouldn't. So I I did resist for a long time, but then I got into the hospitality industry. I was working sort of running events for restaurants and and things like that. And actually, there's a real and as with a lot of industries, I think there's a real work hard, play hard attitude there. So it's long hours and it's very stressful. And sometimes people shout at you and and then as soon as you're finished, open a glass of wine, open a bottle of wine and then people offer you drugs, really. And I waited a while before I accepted, but at this time I didn't have any faith. I wasn't plugged into a church. I didn't have really many people around me who were offering positive guidance or even questioning or holding me accountable for my decisions. And it's really hard to drink every single night and keep up with people who are taking drugs because drugs prop 
keeps up the drinking. So if I wanted to continue to keep up with that party, then I, I needed something extra and I just I decided to try cocaine. And what was the effect of taking that particular drug on you? Gosh, I think the, the effect, it changes over time and with the more that you take. Early on, it, it facilitated my drinking because it meant I could drink more and I loved to drink. So that, that was a, what I perceived to be a big bonus. Also, I had this... I had this skewed idea of identity. You know, I I didn't like the taste of whiskey, but I forced myself to drink old fashioned cocktails, which are made of whiskey, because I thought that made me look sophisticated. And I thought that was really important. So I had this idea of cocaine as being glamorous, as being supermodels, as being famous people, as, you know, that sort of thing, as being members clubs and champagne and cocaine. And I wanted a place in that. That felt very attractive to me. Um, So I went for it. I think I didn't... I think I felt it gave me a place, you know, and gave me a persona that I really wanted. In actual fact, you know... For me, it wasn't just, you know, share a little bit of cocaine with a friend and then that's the night. I would buy more so I could go home and and sit and take more on my own. And that stopped feeling quite so fabulous and started feeling really quite desperate. So, you know... And there is a... uh, There's another story that runs parallel to that in the sense that you weren't looking after yourself... Yeah. You'd wake up in the morning with a black eye. You didn't know where you got yeah. it from. Yeah. And tell us a bit of that side of the story. Yeah. So as well as sort of, you know, just starting the night with lots of drinks and taking drugs and then sometimes going home on my own and, and carrying on the party and feeling the sort of misery of, of that setup, there were, there were numerous incidents that just all built up to a real, a, you know, it was so clear that I was I was getting things wrong. For example, waking up with a black eye is terrifying and not knowing how you got it, yeah. of course, you know, is terrifying. And there's there was a time when I was in a taxi and I realised I didn't have my bank card, which is so frequent for a cocaine user because it's part of the kit that you use to, to take cocaine. So I honestly have left bank cards in so many different club toilets. You're not in your right mind. You have no idea what you're doing. You just throw them around the place. Realised I had no way of paying for this cab, so I had to run and ran and, and hid in front gardens and sort of ducked, you know, and this is at sort of 6am in the morning. And then and you, you sort of look at your life and you think, how, you know, how has a glass of wine and maybe, a, you know, sure. a quick sort of thing turned into this, turned into nosebleeds, turned into not washing properly, always being late for things, never arranging to have breakfast or brunch with someone because you can't guarantee that you won't still be high from the night before, you know, and I... I had physical symptoms like numbness in my fingers and toes and I got spots in front of my eyes and things like that and none of it none of it put me off none of it it <laughs> didn't like shake you or bring you to your senses I you ignored all the symptoms I started getting heart palpitations and I cut out coffee 
when I was taking cocaine, you know, I was convinced that if I stopped taking, if I stopped having a cup of coffee in the morning, then that would bring me back to full health. You know, there's nothing sane about that process. And I, I just, I was not willing to hear the signs to see yes. what was going on and be honest. And I, I didn't know, I think if I had been honest and, and seen that I needed to make what to me felt like an incredibly drastic change of cutting out drugs altogether, I would have been terrified. I wasn't, I wasn't in a position where I could picture a life yeah. like that. So then what, what was it that changed? Yeah, I, the, the, there are a couple of sort of rock bottom nights and the one that we've already referred to, waking up with a black eye, was a real eye opener for me and that was probably my last one. But before that... I, I had a real start when um, I had been at a restaurant with a few friends and one of them had moved to Paris to be with a boyfriend who, and we'd all gone to university together, so I knew him, it was very exciting that they were in this romantic city living together. We went to a French restaurant and um, as was my custom, I went to pick up some drugs as soon as the meal was over so that when we went for drinks afterwards, I would have the drugs that I, I felt I needed. And when I got back, she and, and her sister was there and another friend of mine said, oh, do you know what? It's, it's actually quite late. We've ended up eating until 9.30, 10 o'clock. Everyone's got work tomorrow. So um, we'll just call it a night here. But I had these drugs and I wanted this, uh, you know, once you've got the drugs, you take them. There's no sort of, great, I'll save those for next time. You know, that just wasn't in my mentality. So I went home and I just sat up until I was still awake at 7.30 a.m. when my alarm went off to tell me to go to work. And I had just done my, you know, last line of cocaine. So I was just completely high. And I called my boss and said, I'm, I just said outright, I'm high, I'm not coming in. And she said, OK, well, you know, I'm going to mark you. I'm going to say that you're unwell and we're going to speak about this at the end of the day. Get some rest. And I just called my sister, who had continued to go to church where I dropped out. And that was on a, so that would have been the Friday. And she came around and she moved me in with her on the Saturday. She took me to church on the Sunday. And on the Monday, she sent me into work with a pre-typed resignation letter. Yeah, sign that, hand that in. That was the instruction. That was the instruction. Yeah, so, and then she said, well, what are you going to do now? Because I don't think this industry is right for you um, and, and you need to invest in yourself. And I had just been with this friend who'd had such an amazing romantic story of Paris. And I just said, oh, I'll move to Paris. I'd never even been. But I just thought, well, that's fine. So I moved out there after one sort of recce weekend to identify somewhere to live and, and spent some time with, with my friends out there. And at first, that was great. And I, I still drank heavily. And I, I didn't see that as a problem. Obviously, drinking is far more socially acceptable than class A drug taking. Um, but it was when I found someone, I mean, I couldn't, when I first moved there, ask for drugs because I didn't speak French. But as my French got better and I met more people there, I found someone who started to bring me cocaine. And my friends from university who lived there basically said, you know, enough's enough. You've, you've had this huge upset where you've left London deliberately to avoid all of this. And, and now we can just see you going down this, mm. this terrible route again. 
Um, so one of them found a bilingual support group for me and said, this is where you're going to go and you're going to just just talk to them. Just tell them how you've been feeling and, and see how it goes. Um, so I turned up at that. The last time I drank was actually Easter Sunday 2014, which would have been the 20th of April that year. And then I carried on drinking through the night. So was still drinking on the Monday. Um, but on the Tuesday, I turned up at that support group meeting. And I'm, at this point, I wasn't Christian. But to me, this was so definitely a God thing. Because when you go to um, a support group for drug addicts, it tends to be men and they tend to be in their sort of 40s, 50s, as a general um, demographic. Yes. That group was all women in their 20s, bar one guy. And they were all about three months sober. So I related to them and what they had was just within my reach. When I got there and I heard what they had been through and where they were, I just cried. I just cried for the whole time and they invited me towards the end to say a few words and I did and then they took me out for lunch afterwards. I remember walking to that lunch thinking, I really hope people drink wine at this lunch. They didn't, which I was very disappointed about. And I said to them, if I want to give up taking drugs, do I have to stop drinking as well? And without any doubt, they said yes. And for some people that may not be the case, you know, but... They were so certain that my life would be better without both drugs and alcohol and didn't give me any kind of shade of grey with that. Because if you'd given me an inch, I would have taken a mile. If they'd said, oh, no, we think it's possible, I would have tried and tried. And that would have been another two years of me trying and failing. Um, And they just said, you know, this is this is what's worked for us. And we really believe it will work for you. And, and did you start feeling or did it um, different straight away or did it take three months? What, how long did it take? Yeah, I think I felt I felt really fragile, like like I would bruise if you touched me. And the first week I spent just going to meetings, lying on the sofa and watching Disney films because I couldn't watch a film where I wasn't certain there'd be a positive outcome. I just couldn't risk the emotional turmoil of that. So Disney was for me and I worked my way through the entire back catalogue. Yeah, happy um, endings. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes, you know, yeah. it's always, it's always... Ends well. Yeah, the baddie always falls off something and then the good people are free to live their lives and that's what I needed. Um, but it was my third meeting when so the third day of my recovery when somebody said um, it was a whole session dedicated to discussing your higher power and um, the support meetings that I went to weren't specifically Christian but they do encourage a, a sort of connection with something greater than yourself yes. you know not identifying yourself as the, the highest power in the world is quite important for for how that program works so um um they sort of said well what's your what's the god of your understanding and i thought well you know i had been to church as a child i remembered a lot of the principles i thought it was pretty much just 
a series of fairy stories, you know, strong man cuts his hair, giant boat, that kind of thing. But I thought, look, I'll go and I'll see. And I went to a church in Paris, uh, an American church, and I went to the front. So I would have been sort of six days sober or five days sober at this point. And they again said, you know, they say throughout the, the service, you know, if you want prayer, come up at the end. So I went up and, um, and I explained to this very kind vicar that I was five days clean of drug addiction. He said, okay, can you just wait there and brought over another couple who were amazing. And the, the woman really took me under her wing and I was invited to a, um, a women's Bible study, which was great. And I think it was the combination of the support I had in recovery and the support I had from the church. And I slowly started to feel less fragile at first, it was like at any moment I could be about to relapse. I don't know if I'm going to get through the next hour without drinking. And then I'd sort of get to bed and be like, OK, you've done it. That's that's a whole day down. And you'd be counting the days like that. And then after a month or two, I kind of just turned around and said, oh, I didn't, I didn't really think about it today. And slowly it became less of a, it, it had less of a hold on me, but that took time. It did take time. And now you're helping other people to yes. get out of addictions. Yes. So uh, you run a course, tell us about the course, mm. tell us what you've been doing. And you did a master's. I did, related, yeah. What was your master's in? So my master's was in addiction studies. In addiction yes, studies. Yes, and I did that at King's a couple of years ago. That was brilliant. I, I moved back to London after all of this, having stuck at that church, and it was a year and a half of sobriety and Christianity. And I came back to London and um, did various things but one of the most important things to me was to get a good church community um, and I also wanted to support other people in addiction so I called a few people I called Salvation Army I called a few yeah. of the big churches to see what they were doing and um, there was an already established recovery course that was not at that time running um, that came out of Holy Trinity Brompton in central London and um, I heard all about it and I spoke to some other people who had run similar courses and we decided with the support of the vicar at my church in West London to set something up there which has been incredible so it's been five years that we've been running this recovery program from St Dionys to see people in that place where you feel you really know what's best for them and they can make declarations and make promises and and sort of come back and forwards is really difficult but when it lands it is life-changing yeah absolutely and it's just spectacular and there are different forms uh, of addiction of course it's mm. not just drugs you know it could be sex it could be pornography yeah. it could be all sorts yeah and has this course helped people from all types mm. of addictions yes we get people who come to speak to us about food um, sex love codependency pornography gambling um, and then the sort of substances as well I mean our our sort of standpoint on it is if it's a problem then it's a problem yes and we're we're happy to work with you on it and if it really feels like it doesn't fall in the sort of remit of an addiction then we'll work with you to identify other charities that could support what it is that you're going through but yes and because we promote ourselves 
in church circles predominantly and it doesn't you don't have to be Christian to come but we do use the Bible to support the 12 steps through the program we get a lot of people who are yes. Christian who are established in their sort of faith but really feel that they're letting themselves their families their church families down because they have a sort of secret habit sure. or something and pornography is huge yes. on that list and it's not just men it's women as well and it's something that is really really concerning and particularly you know if somebody continues to use substances you will see a decline in their physical health you will see a decline from them you may even see them under the influence where it becomes very apparent that they need help How, you know it's just painfully easy Absolutely. to hide some of the other addictive behaviors that are out there and pornography is one of my absolute least favorites I yes. could yeah yes. that could be a whole other interview I'm absolutely sure. raging about it but yeah Lauren would you speak to our viewer, viewers directly any viewer now is listening to you they know they have an addiction yeah what would you say to them I don't know anyone who has managed to work through an addiction in isolation on their own um, you're definitely not the first person who's felt this way. You are definitely not the first person to be in a horrible cycle. Um, but you can get help and you definitely should. And the first step for me and for a lot of the people that I've worked with is, is reaching out to somebody who knows what that feels like, asking them how they manage to come through it. And there are so many different channels that you can do that through and support meetings and charities and church programs. And I just really encourage you to reach out to them. And would you pray for anyone yeah. who is struggling with addiction? Yeah, Lord, we thank you that you are a God that understands temptation, that understands the difficulty of the flesh. Um, and we just pray that you would meet each person who is relating to this now, that you would put your arms around them, that they would know that they are not alone, that they have never gone too far to experience your incredible grace and redemption, Lord, that you would give them the strength and courage to reach out and ask for the support that they need, Lord. We, we speak against shame and guilt and any other, any other feeling other than your conviction that there is a better way. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. You've got... Uh, a new book. I do. It's not even you... about addiction either. I know. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. Your new book, Notes on Love. There's a little subheading, Being Single and Dating in a Marriage-Obsessed Church. Now, I would have thought your first book, you would have told your story. Mm. You're saving that for another sequel. Yes, you've but got to keep something in the locker. You've yeah. got to keep something in the locker. So tell us about what is this book about? Yeah, so Notes on Love came about actually because I was mentoring some women and it just, it seemed that all we were talking about was was romantic lives. And that's not because there aren't a million other things to talk about, but actually a lot of the people I was working with felt confident that they had a good direction in their careers and things like that. But actually the thing 
that took up the most headspace, worried the most, was their their dating situation, whether or not they were going to be married and things like that. And actually, a lot of people had looked for a book that they really related to. And there are a lot out there, but they felt that they hadn't found something that really really fully represented their experience um, in terms of the disappointment and pain of it, but also the fun and, and actually sometimes the hilarity of the ridiculous situations that people can get into and things like that. So I put together a proposal for this book and the publishing house, um, SPCK, really liked the idea and it's something that I've been working on over the last year and it's finally going to be released into the wild in July. (laughs) And uh, so to summarise the essence of the book, how would you do that? How would I do that? I would say that it is a reflection of the single experience in the church, whether you have chosen to stay single, whether you are single at the moment, but are hoping to meet someone, you know, whichever that is. But it's also, I hope, reasonably eye-opening to people who are married or have been married for a while, who haven't been in that situation, to sort of invite them to be more inviting you know because at times I think people don't realize how lonely that situation can be for someone who's single and and I guess what I would like for people to get out of it is that even if you're single you're never alone you know absolutely yeah I I read I read it in manuscript form uh, very inspiring and uh, very funny (laughs) <laughs> very amusing <laughs> it's you. like a really chatty i i always kind of felt like you and i when i was reading your manuscript that we're sitting in a coffee shop <laughs> and and, you're, and we're just talking yeah. about these things and and to me i i felt you know as i got to the end it was like look you know if you're single learn to be content mm. if you're married learn to be content <laughs> it's almost like whatever stage of life that you yeah. are uh, god has called us to discover contentment mm. and it's learning that mm. and it's how do you learn that yeah how do you choose and that? holding that intention with people who also have a hope that they will you know move into a different relationship status and there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing no. wrong with wanting to be single there's nothing wrong with being single there's nothing wrong with you know, hoping that you will marry in the future. But actually, if you're so caught up in that hope that it strips away, as you say, your contentedness from today, then that's a shame. And that doesn't feel like the sort of fullness of life that we're called to, you know. Absolutely. Um, Hearing your story, Lauren, you know, with the symptoms of drug addiction, mm. black eye, mm. bleeding nose, um, you never moisturised. I never moisturised, <laughs> that is true, that is true. You didn't look after yourself. Yeah, um, I moisturised today though. Well done. <laughs> it's part and of the gift. now, you know, you, you know Christ as your mm. good shepherd um, and by his grace and the course, you're free uh, of these addictions and helping many other people uh, to be freed from theirs. And um, it's joy to 
to talk to you, to see the beauty uh, that now exudes from you and uh, just keep on keeping on. Oh, that's so kind. Thank Lovely you so to much. have you on the programme. Thank for you, me. Lauren. I really hope you've been inspired by that uh, Lauren story. Um, very heartwarming. And can I add my encouragement to you too, that if you are in any way facing any kind of addiction, uh, seek help, seek God, seek help, uh, find a course uh, like the one that Lauren went on, the one that Lauren uh, teaches and, and get the help that you need. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.